All right, guys, we're going to get started. We are looking at inductive Bible study, second class. Hopefully, you guys get to know each other's names a little bit through the class, and uh, maybe get a coffee throughout the week or something like that with somebody and get to know them a little bit better. That'd be awesome. But uh, today, everybody, did everybody get a handout for today's class? Okay, everybody's got one. I think we got a couple extras if we need them. All right. So as we go through, guys, just kind of fill in the blanks. And if you've got a question, throw your hand up in the air and I'll call on you. And we can talk and, and we can just kind of discuss it. But um, I'm excited about today's class. We're talking about interpretation, which is what does ask the question, what does the text mean? What does the text mean? And hermeneutics and interpretation are related And hermeneutics is just a fancy theologian's word that means the science and art of biblical interpretation. So that's what hermeneutics is. And again, interpretation is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is interpretation. It's pretty much the same thing. But interpretation is just a little bit more simple. Just asking, what does the text mean? But to get to the proper meaning, we use the science and the art of biblical interpretation, which is hermeneutics. So number one is language styles. Language styles is something that we use in interpretation all the time. And you don't you do this without even knowing it. As you read anything, you're you're deciphering uh, through the different literary styles, A, literary styles which is recognizing the different literary styles and that helps you to interpret a passage accurately, helps you to understand what you're looking at. So the first one is a narrative. There's a lot of narrative in the Bible. And uh, narrative is simply historical commentary of the different events. And an example of that is there in your notes. Can I get somebody to uh, read Matthew 19? One through three. Somebody want to throw up their hand and read that for me? Thank you, Jerry. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay, so a little sample there of some narrative, just some historic events in the life of Jesus. The next one you have is Hebrew poetry, which is verse or lyrics. And Hebrew poetry really makes use of contrasts and parallelism. That's a big part of Hebrew poetry is contrast and parallelism. An example there in Proverbs 16, verse 18 and 19. In in verse 18, you have parallelism. Check it out. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So if you look at both of those phrases, you could actually line them up right on top of each other and you'll see they're very, very similar. Pride lines up with a haughty spirit. Pride says goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. So very similar. That's what parallelism is. You'll see it all throughout the Proverbs and the Psalms, mostly in the Proverbs there. But And then an example of contrast in verse 19, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly and then contrast, then to divide the spoil with the proud. So you've got an example of contrasting between humble and proud. 
And then number three is Proverbs. Proverbs are general truths that are based on general life experience. They're guidelines, not guarantees. They're precepts, not promises. So a lot of people don't get that when they're reading through the Proverbs. They'll read something and go, oh, I claim that promise. But the problem is, is you can't because it's not a promise. It's a precept. It's a general guideline. It's not a guarantee. Generally in life, those things are going to be true. But it's not going to be true 100% of the time, all the time. Um, and so you've got to remember that. So, for example, Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 says, My son, do not forget the law or my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Well, we know that not everybody who is a strong Christian that remembers the Lord's law and his word has a long life, right? Sometimes people die. They die young, they die early, and, 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 and for, for different reasons. And so that's more of a general guideline there than it is a promise or guarantee. And then you've got, after Proverbs, you've got parables. Parables are teachings that use allegory or a story to relate one or two different transcending truths. And I want to stress the one or two. A lot of times people um, take too much liberty with parables and they uh, can, can make them say, teach things that they're not. There's usually one or two main concepts that are being taught in a parable. Um, for example, Matthew chapter 13, verse 33 says, Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And so what is he saying there? The main point of what he's saying is that uh, you can't, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it spreads supernaturally. It's not something you can uh, necessarily see with the eyes because the kingdom of heaven is hidden in men's hearts. And so you can share the gospel with somebody and you don't know if that person becomes a Christian or not because God's the one who's doing that work. And you, you'll see it eventually, yeah, but it's, it's a work of God. It's something that God does in the hidden parts of people's hearts. And it's not something necessarily that uh, uh, you're going to see outwardly. So um, one thing, on, uh, a note on parables, it's, you want to be very careful about using a parable, parable to teach doctrine. Okay? You don't want to use parables to teach doctrine. You want to use them to back up or support what is already established as doctrine in other passages of Scripture. In other words, a parable should not be used to establish doctrine, but rather to support existing doctrine that's already clearly established. Okay, You don't use parables to establish it. Um, and then you got epistles, number five there, epistles. Those are letters that were written in the style of the time, and they're addressed to groups or individuals. And you've got an example there of 2 Timothy. Paul is a... Obviously, he wrote uh, 12 of the books of the Bible, and you, those are his epistles, those are his letters. And he, he is, he's using the style of his day when he writes them. Then you've got prophecy, which is predictive scripture. And there's a little excerpt there from Revelation 21. You can read that on your own. It's talking about heaven, the new heaven and the new earth that we'll be experiencing one day. There's going to be no more pain no more death, sorrow, crying. All of those things are going to be gone. And I can't wait for that day. But that's prophecy. It's speaking. It's predicting future events. Then you've got figures of speech. B. 
different figures of speech when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Now you've got a simile to start off with number one there. Simile is an association which uses words like or as. If you see the word like or as, you know you're dealing with a simile that is comparing things to each other. And can I get a volunteer to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 25? Thanks, Nick. <coughs> All right, so what is the simile there, Nick? The flesh is as grass, and the glorious man as the flower of the grass. Grass withers, flower withers. Okay. But the word of the Lord. Right, so, so I'm a flower, right? Yes. Okay, and you're, you're grass. No, I'm just <laughs> No, so there, there you got you guys, you saw that, that simile. He's using the words like or as. It's just a comparison. So he's saying, you know, hey, some of you are flowers, some of you are just more like grass, but we're all temporary. <laughs> all human flesh is, is temporary. So uh, something to remember there. And then metaphors. Metaphors, number two there, when a word or a phrase is used to compare something to which it is not applicable. It's a comparison without using like or as. Uh, can I get a, a volunteer for John 6.35 there? Anybody? Thank you, CJ. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. All right. So what do you think Jesus means there? In that metaphor that he's using. Oh, are you asking? Oh. Sure. Oh, okay. Take a crack at it. <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So he's the bread of life, isn't he? He's the one that sustains us. And that is such a beautiful metaphor about Christ. In fact, when you look at Jesus Christ, he uses a lot of metaphors when he teaches. He says, I'm the door. I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. None of those things make sense unless you understand that's a figure of speech that he's using. It's a metaphor. And so it helps us to realize, okay, so when he says he's a door, that means he's the passageway. You know, you can't get through to the other side unless you pass through Jesus. You know, or when he says, I'm the bread of life here, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm the sustenance of the Christian, the believer. So uh, we come to him and he fills us spiritually. He fills us and, uh, and, and we are satisfied in him. So that's kind of what that's telling us there. The next one there, three, is hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggerating deliberately to accentuate or highlight a fact, okay? And uh, we see that in Psalm chapter 6, verse 6. I'll, I'll go ahead and read this one. It says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. So, as it, can anybody relate with that verse? Has anybody ever cried themselves to sleep at night? And you know what it's like to just... You tire yourself out from crying and then you go to sleep and you, your pillow's soaking wet 
That's what he's saying. He's saying he's just basically in a point in his life where he's just absolutely, uh, you know, just depressed, sorry, sorrowful. Um, Matthew 5, another hyperbole. Matthew 5, 29-30 says, Jesus, he's teaching, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, you know, if we were to just take that literally and go, okay, then we'd have a whole bunch of Christians walking around with no hand, no right hand, no right eye, you know, because we've all been caused to sin by, uh, you know, our our hands and eyes and things like that. So uh, we have to realize he's using a figure of speech. He's exaggerating deliberately to make a point, to to highlight the fact that we need to be serious about sin. And and a lot of Christians, we forget this. We, we've got to be drastic about sinful sources. And we've got to choose God over, over the sin that's in our lives. That's what Jesus is teaching there. Um, then you've got personification. Number four, personification. Personification is ascribing human characteristics to inanimate objects. Uh, is there anybody that wants to volunteer for Isaiah chapter 55, 12? Thanks, bud. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountain and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Okay, so you got personification of, of inanimate objects there. you got mountains and hills that are singing. Trees are clapping their hands. That's called personification. Then V is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. It's kind of a difficult one to spell. <laughs> Anthro and then pomo and then frism. Or fism. <laughs> anthropomorphism. It's a long one, but that is ascribing human characteristics to God. And this happens a lot in the Bible. Um, remember what we talked about last? Well, we talked about this in our bibliology class, I guess. But the, the Bible is both divine and human in its transmission. And so uh, what that means for us is that human beings are going to write with with an idea of describing God using what they know how to describe him with. And one of that is using uh, anthropomorphism. They ascribe human characteristics to God. So, so look at Isaiah 41.10. It says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Then he says something interesting. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Problem is, God doesn't have a right hand because God is spirit. You don't see God. He's, so, so this writer, Isaiah, he's, he's picturing God. He's describing, he's, he's uh, ascribing a human characteristic to God. He's saying his righteous right hand is going to uphold you. And, and so that's, that's, an, that's called anthropomorphism. Another one, Psalm 18, verse 6 through 10. It says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Again, God doesn't have ears per se, like a human being does. Then the, the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. You get in the picture there, the description, and devouring fire from his mouth, even though God doesn't have a nose or a mouth. 
Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. So you guys are getting a picture here of how much the Bible uses anthropomorphism to describe God. It's, a, it's ascribing human characteristics and traits, but we know that God is spirit. So we know that these things, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have them. But doesn't it help you to understand? Doesn't it help you to understand the Bible when, you, when it's, uh, when it's uh, uh, described that way? It does. The next one is zoomorphism. Zoomorphism is ascribing animal characteristics to God. And there's several instances of this in the Bible. But Psalm 91.4 is one. It says, He shall cover you with His feathers. And under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Well, someone might read that and go, What? God is a giant chicken? No. This is a figure of speech. It's zoomorphism, right? How many of you guys have ever seen a mother hen gather her chicks under her wings? Isn't that cool? And then that's a picture that the, the Bible uses to talk about how God loves on his kids. You know, he brings us in, cuddles us up under the wings there. Pastor Phil, you yeah. back and where it says um, wings of the uh, wind, would that be one of the anthropomorphisms? Uh, the wings of the wind? says he flew upon the wings of the wind. No, not in that instance, because the wings of the wind is actually, it's not describing God. He's just describing the wind there. He's saying that God flew on those wings of the wind. Now, if he said, um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think he's referring to God having wings there. I think he's just saying he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. But it's it's close. I mean, I... I I think for sure, uh, you know, Psalm 91.4 is, you know, where it says that he has under his wings, because it says God's wings there. But that's talking about wings of the wind in Psalm uh, 18.10. All right, so we are right there. Number seven, irony. This is when a person states one thing but actually means the opposite. You guys probably use irony a lot. I know I do. Uh, you say one thing, but you actually mean the exact opposite. I get in trouble with my wife for doing this. Anybody ever get in trouble with your spouse? You use irony. You say one thing, but you really mean something else. Like, you know, well, I won't give you an example because I'll get in trouble. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you're not taking too long, honey. Don't worry about it, you know. <laughs> Not like we're going to be late for church. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no. So a great example of that in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 4.10. Paul says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He's using irony. Okay, the, the Corinthians were not these wise believers. They were, they were the fools. Um, he says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So there's some cases of irony. Paul is, he's kind of going off on the Corinthians because he, he just can't believe what is going on with those guys in their church there. So, What would the difference be between irony and sarcasm? Irony and sarcasm are actually very closely related. Um, I think sarcasm, it, it can get a little bit uh, mean. Yeah, sarcasm is a little bit more mean in, in its intent, I think. So... But yeah, they are they're they are related. It, it really it really has to do with the intent there, the difference. But 
Um, all right, we come now to the historical context, C, historical context. Now, this, this includes culture. It includes manners, customs, archaeology. Okay, all of these things help us to understand what a passage is talking about. Do you guys remember when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 and we were talking about head coverings for women? That was one of those passages. It's, it's extremely difficult to peg that and know exactly what it is. Because there's no historical evidence that tells you exactly what Paul was referring to. Some commentators think he could have been talking about a prayer shawl that Jewish women wore. But the, 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 the argument against that is that we're not dealing with a Jewish church. It's a Christian church. So why would they be wearing a Jewish prayer shawl? And then another argument of commentators is that, well, maybe it was something like a hood that was built into um, the clothing in the Corinthian era, you know, or in the Corinthian church's time. And, and the women would flip that over their heads or something like that. And then there's also this, there's this part there that makes you think that maybe Paul's just talking about their hair being, their long hair being their covenant covering because he says men aren't supposed to have long hair. And, and, and all this kind of stuff, it's very vague. And the reason it's so vague is because we don't have solid historical evidence that tells us exactly what Paul was talking about there. And that's another one of those scriptures where we talked about last week. You don't want to be dogmatic about something that scripture is not dogmatic about. And so unfortunately, you see, a, you know, you see whole religions today that are going around with these head coverings and they think that it's all about wearing that head covering. They're being dogmatic about something that's a very small passage of scripture that Paul is not very clear about and we, we can't even be really clear about because when you really study it, there's just no historical contextual evidence to tell you exactly what he was trying to get at there. All we can really understand is what I pointed out on that Sunday that I taught that is that Paul is saying, look, don't, uh, don't uh, confuse the gender distinctions in the worship service. That's kind of the principle that we can pull out of it. But as far as like being, you know, absolutely 100% sure exactly what he was talking about, we can't because we're missing some of the pieces of the historical context. Okay. Um, uh, and so, so that's, that's one of those areas that we were talking about where you don't want to be dogmatic. But you, you see all the lists there. I'm not going to go into all of this. Um, just really quickly passing over it, the circumstances, the subjects, geology, politics, religions, economics, all of that stuff comes into play. The legal system, for example, uh, in the book of Romans, it talks about adoptions. In the Roman culture, if you were adopted into somebody's family, you became a son with full inheriting rights in the Roman culture. And so it's, it's, it's a um, very significant procedure. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. But when you're studying through the book of Romans, if you never looked at the legal system of Rome, you would never get that. And so there's a, there's a really neat application or there's really neat application that you can discover when you um, understand the legal system and the culture of Rome. Uh, architecture. Geography, domestic customs, even the clothes, like the hem of Jesus' garment, that was probably a tassel from his prayer shawl. You can look up a, a, a Jewish prayer shawl, and they've got the tassels on the four corners of that. That's probably what she came and touched and reached out for, uh, the, the woman who was healed from the issue of blood. 
Uh, there, number uh, 12, the military custodia in Matthew chapter 27. The use of the word custodia refers specifically to a Roman guard, not a temple guard. And if it was a Roman guard that was guarding the tomb of Jesus Christ, uh, then that means that they would have been about 16 guys and four of them would have been on guard in front of the tomb at all times. And the other 12 would have been sleeping in a semicircle out in front of what they were tasked and assigned to guard. And so for the disciples to say, or, or for, the, or for uh, the Jews to say, oh, the body of Christ was stolen by his disciples, is ludicrous when you realize a custodia was guarding that tomb. And so little things like that give you extra uh, understanding of, of the text. Um, the athletics there in 1 Corinthians 9, 27 is another one. Paul uses the Corinthian games as an example. Not the, not the games in Athens, but the games in Corinth, which were slightly different. They were, they were similar, of course, but they weren't the same thing as uh, the Olympic games were. Uh, so little things like that. Uh, as a final note there, you use hermeneutics... Uh, to extract the correct interpretation or meaning of the text. And again, I want to reiterate this to you guys. The text has one correct meaning, right? It, it has many applications. But to find that meaning, you've got to dig. You've got to spend the time doing the studying. And so many people don't do that. So many people don't look at the the syntax, the relationship of words with words, the figures of speech, the uh, historical context. They don't do the research. They don't do the homework. And so they come to a faulty interpretation that then leads to faulty application. And that's where you get stuff like, um, for example, the Mormon church that baptizes people vicariously for the dead. Uh, that's a huge part of their religion. They spend uh, working hours baptizing people on behalf of people in phone books. They'll just grab a phone book and they'll start baptizing vicariously for everybody in that phone book. Why do they do that? They base it all off of that one little verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 14 or 15 where Paul uh, talked about there were some Corinthian believers that were doing that. And, and he doesn't even associate himself with them. He just mentions that they were doing it and here you've got the Mormon church that builds an entire church doctrine on baptizing vicariously for the dead. And it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it's crazy to do something like that. You, why would you make a, 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 a doctrine of your church, something like that? And, and, but that's what happens when you don't use hermeneutics and you don't take the time to actually dig and to do the, the research. And you, and you don't realize, oh, Paul, Paul was not even associating himself with that. He wasn't aligning himself with that practice. It's mentioned one time in the entire New Testament. So why make a doctrine out of that, right? So the, the, there's, the, there's the, uh, the idea of that. But you always want to stick to a main idea or principle of a passage within its greater context. You don't want to get caught up going down rabbit trails or side issues that aren't relevant to the text. That can be a problem with hermeneutics <laughs> as you dive into things and you start you know, getting, getting into the historical context. It can lead you down side trails that are not relevant to where the text is trying to take you. So you've got to be careful with those things. You've got to be discerning. Okay, 
you don't want to get too embroiled in any of those areas. Um, and, and this is where you guys are going to have to learn balance. Okay, Part of interpreting the scriptures and or coming uh, studying the Bible, you have to learn balance. You can't spend you know, 10 minutes doing observation and three hours doing interpretation and then one minute doing application. That's, that's out of balance, okay? You got to learn to balance yourself in all of these areas. Um, and, and then I also just want to say, you know, don't let inductive Bible studying uh, intimidate you guys. Uh, it's, it, it can be really fun. It's meant to be fun. And you know what? Anytime you spend studying the Word of God, God is going to pay you back for it. I mean, He's going to pay you back in blessings in your spirit, in your soul. Because as you are studying the Word and you're taking the Word in, you're meditating on it and, and you're having communion with the Holy Spirit. You're having communion with the Lord as you do that. And that's powerful. Um, always allow the Holy Spirit to direct you guys as you study. And if, you, if you're preparing a, a message for somebody, if you're preparing a message for a Bible study or, or maybe you're going to talk to somebody in your family, your husband or your wife, Always pray and ask the Holy Spirit to direct you in that. Ask Him to speak to your life first. Um, you know, when we teach, we're not in a popularity contest. It's about being the messenger of God's truth. And you want to be the, the, the messenger that's bringing God's message. You don't want to be bringing your message. You don't want to be putting your spin on God's truth. You just want to give truth, right? And so that... that that's why we need to rightly divide the Word of God. And uh, for those of you guys that are, that are um, you know, called to be pastors, someday when you teach the Lord's Word, you're going to realize it's a very serious thing. You're standing before God on behalf of the people, and then you're also standing before the people on behalf of God. And it's a serious place to be, and you want to you wanna make sure that the message that you've prepared is not something that you're uh, winging, Okay. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, God, there, there's no grace. I make mistakes all the time when I teach. You guys know, you, you guys that are listening to me on a week-to-week basis, my wife always tells me, she's like, yeah, you quoted that scripture wrong, or you got the verse wrong there. Or, you know, uh, one, one guy came up to me one Sunday and said, hey, the way you worded that was really confusing. And I, I'm just like, you know what? You're right. That was absolutely confusing. And so, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. You just realize, hey, God, God's grace is sufficient for me and my weakness. And uh, I'm doing this to glorify Him, doing it to the best of my ability, and, and then I'd leave the rest up to the Lord. But you definitely don't want to be on the other side of that going, eh, I'm just going to wing it, you know, and kind of go with it, go with whatever I think it says here. You really want to put the time in and, and, and rightly divide the word of truth. So, yes, sir. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Let me change that right now. <laughs> I appreciate things like that. Amen. Well, I've heard a list of your failings over the last six months. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. It's not, it's not as long as mine, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I gave you a retort. <laughs> Uh, all right, guys. Any questions about what we covered? Any blanks that you need me to go back and look at? So next week we have 
some more interpretation. Uh, it, it gets even more in-depth. We're going to look at some, some other things that will help us to rightly divide the word of truth there. And uh, hopefully I'll get my references right. Get all those straightened out for you guys. No. Uh, but we will uh, close with a word of prayer if there's nothing else.